there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Due to the graphic nature of this case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The body is right through here, sir. We'll have to jump over the railing. Jesus, Hennigan. How did you even spot her? It's a jungle in here. There she is. Just a couple yards away. Do you see her? Uh, I can't make anything out. She's face down. It seems she was bludgeoned from behind. Do we have an ID on her? Yes. Irene Izak. 25 years old. From Scranton, Pennsylvania. What's that big stain on your sleeve? Are you hurt? Oh, I hadn't noticed... Listen, I think there's someone else in the woods. I have men covering the area. Hennigan, are you all right? I'm fine, sir. It's not my blood. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a podcast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This is our final episode on the 1968 murder of 25-year-old teacher Irene Izak. Last week, we covered Irene's early life and her dream of moving to Quebec to teach English. On the night of June 9th, she was on her way to making it a reality. However, the next morning, Irene was found dead, a short distance from the Canadian border. This week, we'll cover the investigation into her murder. The case would become a lifelong fixation for some investigators and a source of unending pain for the Izak family. On the morning of June 9, 1968, Irene Izak left her aunt and uncle's home in Cleveland, after hearing about a job opening in Quebec. 
She had an 11-hour drive ahead of her and was in a rush to get to Canada before the interviews closed. Perhaps worried by this tight deadline, Irene made a last-minute change to her plans. She had originally intended to spend the night at a friend's home in Syracuse, New York, before continuing on to Canada. Instead, Irene decided to drive through the night. Irene was last seen by a toll booth worker on Thousand Islands Bridge, 100 miles north of Syracuse at around 2.09 a.m. on June 10, 1968. Not long afterward, Trooper David Hennigan circled Wellesley Island as part of his usual overnight shift. As he drove down Interstate 81, he spotted a VW bug parked on the side of the road. The driver's door was open, and the headlights were still on, but there was no one in sight. Trooper Hennigan remembered the car from a few hours earlier, when he'd stopped Irene for speeding. It was the only traffic stop he'd made since starting his shift at 11 p.m. He pulled over to investigate. According to Hennigan, he noticed some glasses on the ground behind the car and called out Irene's name. When there was no response, he moved further away from the road, climbed over a railing, and jumped down into a ravine. After several minutes searching the dark, rocky area, he spotted Irene's lifeless body face down in the dirt, blood pooled around her head. At 2.35 a.m., he called in the homicide to Watertown headquarters, only 26 minutes after Irene was last seen alive at the toll bridge. Soon, other state troopers joined Hennigan on the scene. First among them was Trooper David Fleming. He immediately noticed Hennigan's breach of protocol. Hennigan? Down here. What the hell are you doing? You know you can't go near the body until BCI clears it? I had to check for vitals. My god, look at the pool of blood. There's no way she would be alive. Get back up here before you get chewed out by the boss! 25 minutes after Hennigan notified Watertown PD of his discovery, the lonely roadside rest area was crawling with police. The officers took swift action, knowing that with every minute that passed, the killer slipped further through their fingers. They knew that the Thousand Islands Bridge toll booth stood on one side of Wellesley Island and the Canadian border crossing on the other. If the killer left the island, those were the likely routes of escape. Authorities set up roadblocks on the island's northern exit and on nearby Hill Island. Meanwhile, the Coast Guard began to circle the shore for any boat activity, and state troopers did a door-to-door sweep of the mostly vacant homes. As troopers scoured the area, Raymond O. Pollitt, the man charged with leading the investigation, arrived. Decades later, as the case received renewed interest, he was asked to recount that early June morning. What followed over the next few years is a convoluted tale that completely took over my life for the rest of my career. He then went on to describe how Irene's case was an uphill battle from day one. Several factors made this case so difficult. At the time of day of the murder, all the government offices were closed. The lousy weather obliterated evidence. The rain blotting out footprints and fingerprints. The lack of vehicular traffic afforded the killer quick egress from the scene. There were few tourists and year-round residents to hear or see anything. Pollitt first arrived on the scene around 2.45 a.m., Trooper Hennigan guided him towards the location of the body. Pollitt described Hennigan's demeanor that night as slightly excited, 
although he also noted that it wasn't unusual behavior for an eager young cop. A car parked on a lonely stretch of road in the middle of the night, its door left wide open. I had to check it out. As I got closer, I realized it was a vehicle I'd stopped earlier tonight, driven by a white female. When I saw the car was empty, I decided to look around. Something just didn't feel right. Then, after climbing over the railing, I spotted her. You have the eyes of a hawk. I couldn't see her, even after you pointed out her body. That her blood on your shirt? Uh, yeah. Must have happened when I checked her vitals. It was so dark I didn't realize how much blood was around the body. I know it goes against protocol, sir, but my instincts took over. You're damn right you broke protocol. We've all been trained for this, Hennigan. Look at this place. The brush around her has been trampled. And it's not just you. Who let the medical examiner touch her before evidence was collected? Does no one know how to do their job around here? The crime scene was clearly compromised, but Paulette would gather as much evidence as he could regardless. According to investigators, Irene had been repeatedly pummeled on the back of the head before her death. The force of the blows was so intense that her face had sunk two or three inches into the soft earth below her. Her killer used heavy rocks from the ravine to beat Irene. Paulette counted about five bloodstained rocks near the body. Two of them had hair and tissue still on them. After examining Irene's body, police inspected her car, but nothing seemed to be missing. No money or jewelry had been taken. The car itself had no damage, leading the team to assume that she had willingly pulled over. The medical examiner also ruled out sexual assault. Irene's broken glasses were discovered on the pavement behind her vehicle, and her face was bruised. This suggested she was first attacked by the side of the road, then dragged into the ravine where the murder continued. After observing the scene, William J. McCluskey, the Jefferson County DA at the time of the murder, offered his take on what had happened. That rock alone must weigh 30 pounds. This definitely wasn't planned. The killer probably used the first thing they could find. And notice how they didn't just use one rock. They used one, put it down, then another, put that one down, and another. Why bother? Maybe the clean rocks helped the killer avoid touching blood and tissue? Maybe, but it almost seems panicked. Like they didn't mean to kill her at first, but once they started, they had to make sure she was dead. As investigators continued searching for clues, troopers dispersed all over the island, hoping to gain further insight into Irene's final hours. Trooper Fleming drove to the Thousand Islands Bridge to speak with toll worker Clifford Putnam. He was the last person to see Irene alive. Sir, can I ask you a few questions? Son, I'm a retired cop. I know what all this commotion means. It's never good. Do you recall a young woman driving through here earlier in the night? She was driving a tan VW? Yes, of course. I haven't gotten too many cars in the last few hours. And that girl, she was on edge. What do you mean? One of your guys scared the hell out of her. Hennigan? I guess he'd pulled her over earlier. Whatever he did really spooked her. That poor girl was shaking. The toll worker's statement came as a shock to Fleming. At the scene... Hennigan never mentioned to him that he'd previously met the victim.
Coming up, Hennigan's account of the night begins to unravel. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Now back to the story. In the early morning hours of June 10th, 1968, 25-year-old Irene Isak was brutally killed in a wooded area of Wellesley Island, New York. As the sun rose and the investigation began, authorities had the difficult task of notifying her family. Officers traveled two hours south to Binghamton, New York, where Irene's sister Luba and brother-in-law Steve Boyko lived. But even before word reached them, Irene's parents had woken up with a terrible premonition about their youngest daughter. Reverend Isaac and Maria went to their church to pray for Irene's prompt return. Unfortunately, their worst fears would soon come to pass. Steve Boyko called a close friend of Irene's father, a fellow Byzantine priest, who agreed to break the news to him. Hello? Bodon. Petro? What is it? I call you with a heavy heart. Now, more than ever... You and Maria must lean on your faith. Irene? I received a call from your son-in-law, Steve. The police found her body early this morning. She is with God now, Bodon. No, that's a mistake. Our Lola can't be. At first, Reverend Isak refused to accept the fact his daughter was dead. He even called the Kowalski home in Cleveland, the last place Irene had stayed in, hoping it was all a terrible misunderstanding. Hello? Hello? I- is Irene there? Uncle Bodan? What's wrong? Tell me that Irene is there. No, no, she's not here anymore. She left over the weekend. <laughs> Uncle, what's going on? Because they were the closest to Watertown, the Boykos were asked to come to identify the body. Steve spared his wife the pain of identifying her own sister and drove the two hours himself. He confirmed that the victim was, in fact, Irene Isaac. Later that same day, Reverend Isaac drove to Watertown with an undertaker to claim Irene's body. It was something he'd never thought he'd have to do after his family survived war-torn Europe. Once he arrived, he asked to speak with the man that had found his daughter's body. Yet despite his pleas, Trooper David Hennigan refused to meet him. He was preoccupied with problems of his own. Hennigan's timeline was under scrutiny. Could he really have done a full nine-mile patrol of Wellesley Island within 25 minutes? If it took longer than that, 
Hennigan must have followed Irene all the way from the bridge to the site of her death. The evening after the body was discovered, investigators rode with him on the route he claimed to have driven before he found Irene's remains. Multiple runs of the route proved the timeline was feasible. However, considering his previous interaction with Irene and the blood stains on his shirt, officers remained suspicious. That same night, June 10th, 1968, Hennigan was asked to take a polygraph test. Worried about the test, Hennigan consulted with the DA. I'm sorry, Hennigan, they outvoted me. I wanted to give you some time to rest before they did any tests. I don't know if I want to take the poly. It's offensive that I should have to. Don't fight back. If you have nothing to hide, take the test. Hennigan took the first of two polygraph tests the night of June 10th, 1968. The first came back flat. The machine couldn't get a reading on him. The second test, taken at a later date, suggested he was telling the truth when he gave his account of June 10th. But the positive result wasn't enough to appease investigators. They set up another interview and grilled Hennigan about the details of Irene's traffic stop. Paulette and his partner, Chip Donahue, had taken turns test driving the VW. It couldn't go faster than 62 miles per hour, well below the 75 miles per hour Hennigan had pulled her over for. By then, they had also figured out that Irene had made one last phone call before she died, which they traced to a Watertown rest area. The time and location of this call conflicted with Hennigan's reported time and location of the traffic stop. You're right, it wasn't a traffic stop. Because of the recent robberies on the island, I did a routine check of the car. As to the location, it might have been closer to the bridge than I reported. That was a simple mistake. You gave different accounts on the scene. You failed to mention the stop at all to Trooper Fleming, then told me you didn't recognize the VW and reported the body as possibly female. After that, you admitted that you knew exactly who the victim was. You might have given us the wrong location of the traffic stop. I can understand that. But going back and forth on your interactions with the victim isn't some minor detail. It's the kind of thing that could land you in jail. David, we've known each other for years. I'm going to ask you straight up. Did you have anything to do with Irene Isaac's murder? Ray, I know I don't come out looking too great, but I did not kill that girl. What about the blood on your shirt, huh? I told you I got it on me when I turned her over. David, some of these stains look splattered on your shirt. It's not consistent with simple handling of the body. I can't believe what you're saying. David, don't say another word. Get your things, we're leaving. Ray, I can't believe you would suspect your own friend. The interview lasted only 30 minutes before Hennigan's wife dragged him out of the police precinct. It was the only official statement Hennigan made before he lawyered up. Years later, Pollitt blamed himself for not doing things differently. He could have insisted Mrs. Hennigan leave the station, but he confessed that tensions were high between investigators and troopers. The state police believed Pollitt and his team were unjustly fixating on one of their own. The interdepartmental hostility was just one of many obstacles Pollitt encountered. The rain on the night of the murder washed away crucial evidence, including a bloody fingerprint on the back of Hennigan's patrol car that many spotted but failed to preserve. Only two witnesses ever came forward with testimony about the night of Irene's death, 
both confirmed seeing the VW Bug and patrol car parked by the side of the road as they drove home from work, but didn't notice anything suspicious. While Pollitt and Donahue worked on Hennigan, investigator Donald Brandstetter was tasked with talking to Irene's family and acquaintances. His first stop was Marie Lambrecht's home. She was Irene's cousin and closest friend. Unbeknownst to Brandstetter, the news of her cousin's death had not yet reached Marie, and he was the one to break it to her. After giving Marie some time to process the tragedy, the investigator asked a few questions that could help them better understand Irene. How well would you say you knew Irene? Probably better than anyone. We were like sisters. Do you think Irene would have stopped in the middle of the night to pick up hitchhikers or offer help to someone? She was smart. She would not have stopped for a stranger. How about an authority figure? Perhaps. She was always the type to follow rules. What if this figure made her a sexual proposition? She would never. Despite accusations from New York state troopers that investigators were unfairly targeting Hennigan, Pollitt was actively following every possible lead. In the weeks after Irene's June 10th murder, he drove up to Canada to interview Irene's ex-boyfriend. He then traveled to Connecticut after a rumor reached him that a mentally ill patient, formerly suspected of being a serial killer, had worked in the Thousand Islands Bridge area. Pollitt became so consumed by the case that on two occasions, he had a trooper drop him off in the woods near the site of the murder. He spent the night outside, on the lookout for anything unusual. All of it came to naught. The investigation continued for 15 months, but the police came no closer to finding Irene's murderer, until a call from the Toronto police gave them a new reason to hope. A 26-year-old Canadian man, already in jail for breaking his parole, confessed to killing a woman on Thousand Islands Bridge. Up next, investigators visit a Canadian convict in hopes of putting the case to rest. Now, back to the story. In October of 1969, Officer Raymond Pollitt drove to a jail in Toronto, Ontario. He was following a major lead in the case of Irene Isaac. A man who we'll call Michael Stevenson had confessed to the murder of 25-year-old Irene. I grabbed the nearest thing I could find and smashed it over her head. Knocked her out immediately. That's when I dragged her out of sight. What did you hit her with? Uh, a branch. A branch? Several branches. We're done here. You've wasted enough of my time. It was me! I swear I killed her! Send me to jail! An American jail, please! During his interview with Stevenson, it became apparent that his only knowledge of the crime was what had been published in a true detective magazine. Stevenson only wanted notoriety and to be transferred to an American jail. Throughout the next decade, the few additional leads Pollitt pursued did nothing to further the case. Many suspected Trooper David Hennigan, the officer who had found Irene's body, of being the culprit. But William J. McCluskey, the Jefferson County DA, decided against pressing charges, stating there was only circumstantial evidence. During this time, the Isaac family got little information about the status of the investigation. 
a crime reporter later noted that the DA's office and the New York State Troopers were unusually tight-lipped and almost evasive about the case. Eventually, the Ezak stopped asking. They banned any mention of Irene's death within the family and slowly came to terms with the unanswered questions surrounding their daughter's death. Meanwhile, Trooper Hennigan remained on the force. He was never relocated nor even placed on leave while he was being investigated for murder. McCluskey explained that it would have reflected badly on the department had they done so. As Irene's death slowly turned into a cold case, Hennigan himself went through an evolution. A man who was once given the nickname The Heathen by fellow troopers for his common temper tantrums and habit of reading porn magazines on the job, became deeply involved in the Catholic Church. He even built a chapel for his local cemetery free of charge. In 1977, he began training to become a deacon. By October of 1980, he was ordained and able to assist priests in most Catholic Church services. He remained both a deacon and state trooper until his retirement from the force in 1983. By that time, some in the Isak family were frustrated. Though Irene's parents preferred not to speak of her murder, her brother, Zinan Isak, felt differently. There were so many strange circumstances about the way the case was handled that Zinan began to suspect a cover-up. In 1984, he contacted a private detective who agreed to look into the case. This PI looked over all the available evidence and all of the case files. In short order, the PI became convinced David Hennigan was Irene's murderer. He was determined to find the necessary evidence to prove it. But when Reverend Isaac heard about the PI's investigation, he called his son and ended it. He simply couldn't put his wife or himself through the trauma of an investigation all over again. The case stagnated for quite some time until both of Irene's parents died, Reverend Isaac in 1988 and his wife Maria three years later. The ban on investigating Irene's death died with them. Irene's niece, Lisa Caputo, took the opportunity to ask fresh questions about her aunt's death. In 1998, Lisa brought in another PI, a former NYPD cop, To protect his privacy, we'll refer to him as Saul. Saul offered to work for free as he was convinced he could prove David Hennigan's guilt. If he was successful, the Isaks could sue the state for wrongful death, and the ensuing settlement would be more than enough to pay for his investigation. He and Lisa joined forces with local police reporter Dave Champagne, who had been quietly gathering information on the case for years. He claimed to have sources within the state police that were equally convinced of Hennigan's guilt. Saul wasted no time in pushing the family to lobby for an official reopening of the case. They sent a letter to the New York governor, George Pataki, detailing the ways Irene's case had been mishandled and the reasons it should be revisited. To their surprise, in October of 1998, Lisa received word from the New York State Bureau of Criminal Investigation the case had already been reactivated. The Bureau believed that advances in DNA testing had justified reopening the case on its own merits. Investigators showed up to the Caputo home on October 20th, 1998. They were received by 16 members of the extended Isak family. Even 30 years after her death, Irene had never left their minds. 
Irene's surviving siblings consented to exhuming her body for lab work. Two high-profile scientists, one who had worked on JFK's second autopsy and the other on the identification of Tsar Nicholas II's remains, had even joined the lab team. Along with Irene's body, a piece of the uniform that Hennigan wore the night of Irene's murder was also tested for DNA matches. However, the test was never completed as not enough blood remained on the sample. While the blood test was unsuccessful, the investigative team had great success rebuilding Irene's skull. Upon re-examination, the team determined that Irene had died after the first blow to the back of her head. The other blows were entirely unnecessary attacks driven by pure rage. Sadly, most other areas of the investigation were dead ends. Too much time had passed, and much of the physical evidence the original investigators had found had gone missing. For instance, Irene's VW bug had completely vanished. Trooper Fleming, the second cop on the scene, had a major accident that impaired his memory, and the toll booth worker, a crucial witness, had died years before. When Lisa filed a request to unseal documents from the original investigation, she was stonewalled. The family only received Irene's class ring in return. They wrote countless letters to David Hennigan, his wife, and even his church superiors pleading for a private conversation. Most went unanswered. Those from the church maintained his innocence and sometimes accused Champagne and Pollitt of scapegoating the deacon. In the summer of 1999, state police intercepted Hennigan on the road and invited him to speak in a neutral location. Again, he refused. That same summer, a New York City TV reporter did what Champagne and Saul never mustered the courage to do. Go to Hennigan's front door in Dexter, New York, for a knock and talk. Mr. Hennigan, I'm with the WB11 News. Would you like to comment on the ongoing investigation into the murder of Irene Izak? No comment. You were the trooper on duty that night, yet you refused to help investigators. Did you have something to do with Irene's death? I was working that night. I had nothing to do with her death. Would you be willing to sit down with her family? Talk to my lawyer. But, but I will say this. I didn't have any rights then. I do now. That was the only public comment he ever made on the case. The televised interview of a gray-haired Hennigan aired in August of 1999. Then, in 2004, Hennigan sent his first and only response to Dave Champagne. Perhaps you should consider the effect that your journalism has on individuals and their families and report the facts, not embellish them with yours or others' personal agendas. I suggest you take into consideration the laws regarding libel, defamation, and slander as you proceed. On March 3rd, 2009, David Hennigan passed away, and with him, the ESAC's only hope for answers. However, the case was already reaching its end by then. Saul had consulted with an attorney to see if the federal government could prosecute a charge, but they were outside the 10-year statute of limitations. Saul expressed frustration at the government's inability to help. Unfortunately, there wasn't much left to do. Irene was once again laid to rest in the family plot next to her parents. The case had closed for good. When taking all the evidence into account, I find I have to agree with the P.I. The system failed Irene. 
It seems that Hennigan was protected by his department, and he then hid behind one of the most powerful institutions in the world, the Catholic Church. To me, it seems like his religious actions indicate a guilty conscience, atoning for one major sin, murder. Yes, I must agree. There were just too many inconsistencies in Hennigan's account. His defensive demeanor and refusal to meet with Irene's parents were clear signs of guilt. We also have to confront the lack of other possible suspects. The island was near empty. It had to be Hennigan. It's unfortunate that the Isaks never got the closure they wanted, especially her parents. However, the fact that so many refused to give up over the decades speaks to the impact Irene's death had on her community and her tight-knit family. This case starkly highlights the pain that ripples through a family when they lose a child. That pain becomes all the worse when the system that is supposed to keep us safe stands in the way of justice. Had there been more transparency throughout the investigation, Irene's case might have had a chance of being solved. Unfortunately, her murderer will forever be free from capture. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on the murder of Irene Isaac, amongst the many sources we used, we found The North Country Murder of Irene Isaac, Stained by Her Blood, by Dave Champagne, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Unsolved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Yeah, if we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Edlin Ortiz, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Mike Capozzi, Sky King, Harris Markson, Kathleen Nielsen, and Dan Velasquez. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Unsolved.